And I have the privilege of um, sharing a little with us all this morning. Um, it's really great to see all of you. As Adrian said, we're continuing in our series about the parables of Jesus um, and asking ourselves the question, what if Jesus was serious? And I came across this story from a US preacher, and she talks about when her parents traveled to Israel and Palestine, visiting the Holy Land, and they were telling the story of how sometimes nice Christians fall for this scam and they're offered tours, tickets for tours of biblical sites that include a visit to the very road where the Good Samaritan was beaten by thieves. Now this seems like it would really complete a trip to the Holy Land until you realize that the Good Samaritan was a parable and it would be like selling tickets to the childhood home of Billy Goat or some other fairy tale. But our desire to believe that there's an actual road we could visit where the Good Samaritan helped the beaten man points to our desire to domesticate parables into something we understand, something we can grasp. But that's not what parables are. They're metaphors. They're part riddle, part joke, part fable, and sometimes unsolvable. And that can be very maddening and confusing which is why throughout Christian history, we've worked to try and package parables into nice, neat little boxes. But this preacher who shared the story says, that's like trying to nail jello to a tree, or jelly for those of us from the UK. <laughs> so today we continue in this series. And as I reflected on this question of what if Jesus was serious, I reflected on my experience as a parent. And as a parent, I spend most of my life wishing my kids would take me seriously. Anyone else feel like you tell your kids the same thing over and over and over again, getting a little bit more irritated each time <laughs> just to be completely ignored? Perhaps for you, it's your siblings or your colleagues never seem to quite take you seriously. And as I pondered on this sermon, I had this image of Jesus seated at the right hand of God with his head in his hands, watching us all live our lives and thinking, what on earth do I have to do for them to take me seriously? And so with that, I think we should pray before we get into today's parable. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and this time to come before you to consider your word. Thank you that your word is alive, it's living, it's breathing, and it's present with us. Thank you that Jesus embodied your word um, in more ways than we can ever understand. And as we become, come before these words of Jesus this morning, we just pray that your presence would fill this place. We pray that you would take my empty words and fill them with your spirit, with your power, with your love. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to truly hear from you and experience you in this place. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So today, we take a look at the parable of the marriage feast found in Matthew 22. Hopefully, it will come up on our screen. Um, but if not, you can follow along in your Bible if you have it. It's Matthew 22, and we'll be reading verses 1 
to 14. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And so chapter 22, verse 1 starts like this. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his field, another to his business, and the others seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you're here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. The king said to his aides, bite his hands and his feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A nice happy ending to our parable this morning. I think it's helpful to take a quick look at the context before we dive into the parable itself. It's important to note that Jesus tells this parable right in the middle of what Christians often call Passion Week or Holy Week. In the chapter before, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, and within the week, he'd hang on the cross. The people of Jerusalem had long awaited a Messiah but had in their minds and in popular opinion been waiting for a majestic ruler who would destroy their enemies and fulfill all their human, earthly fantasies of a great ruler. Whilst riding into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilled an important Old Testament prophecy, there was definitely something about Jesus that stirred up the crowds. They weren't expecting the Messiah to be this humble, slightly questionable upstart from Nazareth who seemed to turn their understanding of God and his kingdom on its head. But they recognized something. The man who preached an upside down kingdom and rode into Jerusalem like a poor man on a donkey was welcomed like a king with shouts of Hosanna. But surely he couldn't actually be the Messiah. And right from this point, Jesus starts to turn everybody's idea of power and privilege on its head, just as his ministry on earth was about to reach its climax in his death and resurrection. We can go to the first slide. After his arrival in Jerusalem, we read about the incident with the money changers in the temple. For those not familiar, Jesus rocks up at the temple and gets extremely angry at the money changers and those selling doves for worship. He accuses them of turning his father's house into a den of robbers. He turns the tables upside down and causes quite the stir. His display of righteous anger in a holy place was certainly unexpected. And we get a further glimpse into God's upside down kingdom. And we see from Matthew chapter 21, this series of parables where Jesus starts to unpack what the kingdom of God 
looks like. In fact, through the Gospel of Matthew, we catch the glimpses of God's kingdom and what many would perceive to be an upside-down kingdom. You can go to the next slide. Starting with the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and his seemingly favorite phrase, you have heard it said, but I tell you, this contradiction of what Jesus was talking about when he talked about God's kingdom and what the people expected. When he turns long-held traditions and beliefs on their heads. In Matthew 20, we read the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And here we begin to realize with this chapter and the next that Jesus came to die, apparently, rather than reign as king and destroy his enemies. Jesus questions everything that the religious folks of the day recognized as holy. From the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders themselves, to the practices connected with worship in the temple. In chapter 21 and verse 16, Jesus receives praises and recognition from the mouths of babes, honored by children who would not normally have much of a voice, yet spoke such truth. Again, in chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus himself honors the faith of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. An upside-down kingdom is presented and represented by Jesus throughout this book of Matthew, and especially in this portion here. And amidst all of this, we are repeatedly pointed back to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the pastors of the day, and their plot to kill Jesus in response. And so in this final week of Jesus' life on earth, we begin to see three significant themes unfolding. You can see them here. First, Jesus' invitation to people to experience the kingdom of God in the most unexpected ways, from the mouths of babes, in holy anger in the temple, riding on a donkey, experiencing the kingdom of God in the most unexpected ways. The second theme I think we see unfolding is the rejection of Jesus, and with it, the rejection of God's kingdom. The spiritual leaders of their day turning their back completely on Jesus. And the third theme, Jesus' recognition by those marginalized, rejected, or ignored by society, and particularly by religious society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those deemed not good enough for Jesus. And it's in this context that Jesus tells the parable of the marriage feast. But let's pause for a moment just to think about how and why Jesus used parables. Parables essentially are short stories that Jesus used to teach his disciples and those listening to him. He used everyday situations and events that his listeners would have been familiar with to get across some key point or teaching. And Jesus tells parables for many reasons, but I think Jesus in part just recognized the power of storytelling creating a narrative in which the listeners recognize themselves and identify with the central characters in a way that helps them reflect on their own belief and behavior. Using stories in this way, parables reveal a Jesus worldview and give us a glimpse of that kingdom of God. Parables, like stories, can be complex. However, in this one that we've read today, The Marriage Feast, 
most scholars, not all, but most conclude that the king in the story is God the Father. It's God the Father who has set the wedding feast. And the son who is being honored at the banquet is Jesus Christ. The king prepares this feast with the best possible food, the fattened calf, nothing but the best, a party that really sounds something like everyone would want to be part of, want to be on the guest list for. However, in this story, both the father and the son are rejected by the invited guests. These guests, at best, politely decline the banquet invitation and at worst, go to the extreme of killing the king's messengers who come bearing the invitation. In verse 5, we read that those who declined the invite went off for their business or to their fields. And this mirrors the very real rejection of Jesus during his life on earth. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, from the earliest parts of the Old Testament, we see the Jews, God's chosen people, rejecting God, choosing their own path and turning their backs on him. It's no accident, I don't think, that Jesus tells this story in the middle of the Holy Week, the climax, in fact, of his rejection by the Jews. It was the religious leaders themselves, the leaders of the Jews, who set in motion this plan to have Jesus killed. Now in our parable, in response, the king does two things to deal with these people who've rejected his invitation. First, he destroys the city of those who had rejected him. And secondly, he instructs his servants to go to the streets and invite anyone they can to enjoy the banquet that had been prepared. Now, some scholars say that the king's reprisal against the murderers can be interpreted as a a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction that comes a few years later. Others say that the vengeance speaks to the desolation mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's not clear, and we won't dwell there because I don't think that's the crux of the story today. Excuse me. But the wedding invitation is then extended to anyone and everyone, total strangers, both good and bad, Jews and Gentiles, suddenly everyone is invited. Historically, we know that the Gentiles, that is anyone who was not a Jew, were excluded from God's kingdom, excluded from God's protection and his plan for redemption, at least in common understanding. But we see this challenge throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. And Matthew 28, the end of this same book, ends with Jesus sending the disciples into every nation, including to the Gentiles. And so the wedding feast fills up. The guests are enjoying themselves. The king seems pretty pleased until he comes across a guest who's not appropriately dressed. Verse 12 tells us, friend, the king asked, how is it that you're here without your wedding clothes? And the man had no reply. Now, most scholars agree that perhaps the king gave guests special wedding garments as part of their invitation to the banquet. And the problem here is not that the guests did not comply with some dress code, but that he did not wear the garments provided for the occasion. It would have been a huge insult to the king to refuse to wear these provided garments, garments specially made for the celebration. 
The man who was caught wearing his old clothing learned what an offense it was and he was removed from the celebration. And this is in many ways the trickiest parts, part of this parable. It doesn't really seem fair that this man invited to the party last minute should be kicked out for not having the appropriate attire. Pastor and prison chaplain, chaplain Chris Hoke shares the experience of teaching this parable to a group of prison inmates by narrating the story of a prisoner called Richard. <clears throat> Richard was a pretty troubled young guy, unwanted from birth, tossed about the care system his entire life with no one to love him or to provide the care and nurture that he needed. Richard found in this story, according to Chris, an invitation for himself to sit at God's table and participate in the wedding feast. Jesus clearly says in the parable that the king invited the good and the bad, and Richard was ecstatic, rounding up his fellow inmates and pulling them along to Bible study to hear this same truth. And Chris, the chaplain, shares that Richard liked the stories in which Jesus walked amongst the kind of characters he could relate to. Thieves, prostitutes, people with problems like the untouchable sick who had to announce their presence when entering a neighborhood. Richard started to pay attention to this protagonist who spent most of his time among lives gathered in the cracks of town and all around the edges, the outside like trash. Jesus enjoyed them, it seemed, even loved them, valued them. He touched them, restored them, and spoke of a kingdom where they belonged, a kingdom that was both here and hidden. And he talked as if God was like this as well. And Richard himself, trying to convince his fellow inmates, is trying to explain this text. And he says, the king sends out more of his messengers to the streets. He's looking for more people. Those other guys missed their chance. And so the king is like, go out to the streets. Tell all the misfits and the bad people like us, Richard says to his fellow inmates, to come to the party. And the other guys are not quite as excited, but they're getting there. And Richard says, I'm not making it up. Look here. It says, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both good and bad. The roads? That's the streets. And who do you find on the streets, Richard asks? Bad and good. It says right here. Chris said, I thought our reading of the wedding banquet parable could end right there, on the high where Richard had brought us, where the hall happily filled with guests and the wedding banquet was attended by all. We didn't have time to take on the rather difficult verses that followed, but it was too late, Chris shares. The inmate reading aloud was already there and reading the verse about the guest being kicked out for being inappropriately dressed. And at this point, Richard stood up and threw back his chair. Just what I thought. What do you people expect from us? We don't have all the right clothes. We never look right. You should know that. Why did you even invite us here to any of this if you're just going to humiliate us and throw us out anyway? It'd be better not to come than to have you break our hearts. And I'm sure that's how many thought at the wedding banquet in the parable of Jesus as they watch this scene unfold. But Chris, the prison chaplain, jumps in and quickly explains that in first century Palestine, some scholars say it was custom for the host of the wedding feast, and especially a king, to provide these garments for guests right at the door. And Chris likens it to little birthday hats that parents give out as you arrive for a birthday party, dressing for the occasion. 
Chris says, it's the first comparison that came to mind. It's not about who comes dressed up nice or not. Everyone is given the celebration attire. So if this guy's not wearing it, it's not because he's poor or dirty or bad. There's some other reason he's choosing not to wear it. And it's an insult, a direct disrespect to the host in front of everyone in his own home. It's like this garmentless guy's refusing to celebrate. And it was interesting to see that reflection of Chris and Richard as they looked at this experience from perhaps a different perspective from most of us of coming to this parable of the marriage feast. But it made me think, what do we wear to enter the presence of God? And this is not to pass judgment on short skirts or bare shoulders like many churches do, but to highlight that God, through the death of his son Jesus, has provided for us to be clothed in salvation. We should enter the banquet wearing love, wearing forgiveness, wearing grace. Scripture often talks about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not our own self-righteousness or good deeds. Revelation 19 talks of another wedding feast where the bride is dressed in a bridal gown of bright and shining linen. And it says, the linen is the righteousness of the saints. Roman chapter 13 tells us to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, which seems like a really strange thing to say. But let's remember that attendance at the wedding feast represents entrance to God's kingdom. And that's only possible because of Jesus and his death on the cross. It's by that death on the cross that Jesus forgives us and makes us right with God. We don't enter because of our own good deeds or our own successful lives. We enter because of Jesus's death and resurrection that makes us right with him. Jesus makes it possible for us to enter. And so us being well-dressed has nothing to do with where we bought our clothes and everything to do with the state of our hearts. It has everything to do with our acceptance of Jesus's offer of salvation. It doesn't matter if we're wearing Gucci or LK Waikiki's finest. The fact that it comes from our own wardrobe is why it falls short. We cannot dress ourselves in a manner appropriate for God's kingdom. It's simply not possible. No amount of our good deeds or polite words will get us there. We can only access God's kingdom because of Jesus' death on the cross that restores us, rescues us, and readies us for the kingdom, for the wedding banquet. This parable seemed like a slap in the face to the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day, and it nudged their growing anger even further. They thought their lineage and their role as the spiritual leader was enough for them to get a seat at God's wedding feast, at the banqueting table. But Jesus points to their hearts and they can't quite handle it. So as we draw to the end of this reflection and and into some discussion time, I guess the question is, what does this mean for us today? We started by highlighting these three key themes. Jesus's invitation to people to experience the kingdom of God in the most unexpected ways. Jesus' rejection, and with it, the rejection of God's kingdom. And thirdly, 
Jesus' recognition by those most marginalized, rejected, or ignored by society. This parable emphasizes each of these three themes and I think nudges us to reflect on our own lives. With the first theme, Jesus invites us to experience the kingdom in unexpected ways. It's often not what we expect, not what the Pharisees or the spiritual leaders of this time had in mind. In this case, it's a party, a wedding feast, and all are invited. And so I think the question we should ask ourselves this morning is, where do we see God's kingdom revealed in unexpected places and unexpected ways? Perhaps around a table, perhaps on the streets in pursuit of justice, in a prison Bible study, in the generous hands of those we've excluded. Where do we see God's kingdom revealed? Secondly, as we look at how Jesus was rejected and in the parable by his own guests, we think of how we invite the people we love most to a wedding feast. But Jesus' beloved guests made every excuse not to come. Have we rejected God's invitation? Can we think of times that we've ignored his invitation to engage in his kingdom? said we're too busy, too tired, too important, too disinterested, not in the right place to engage in his kingdom. Where have we rejected God's invitation? And thirdly, Jesus consistently drew in those typically excluded, thieves and thugs, prostitutes, tax collectors, the unclean and mentally ill, These people recognize Jesus and he honored their faith. Are we as inclusive? Do we extend our love, our generosity and our hospitality and in turn God's love to all? Would you find those same people seated at your dining table? And so to help us reflect on these three things this morning, I have three discussion questions. And I'd love for us just to gather in small groups, maybe four or five people just where you're seated, and just take a few minutes to reflect on these three questions. One, do you think Jesus' upside-down kingdom is still relevant today? What common beliefs do we have about God or heaven that Jesus seems to turn upside down? Secondly, have you ever felt God inviting you into something, yet you've been reluctant to accept the invitation? Perhaps it's an invitation to a conversation, to a table, on mission, into a friendship or relationship, but it just seemed too messy, too difficult, or too far. And third, what do you think it means for us to be dressed appropriately today? How do we wear Jesus Christ? And what does this mean for us in our day-to-day lives? So take a few minutes just to share with each other, reflect together on what we've looked at this morning. And we'll regroup in about uh, eight minutes or so um, for a song and uh, to close. So find your neighbors and um, have some chat. In this parable, the kingdom of God is represented as a feast, an amazing party with the best food. God's kingdom is for us to enjoy. So let's embrace it. Let's pursue it. Let's seek out God's invitation this week. Let's accept it. Let's share it with others and invite to the party. 
Maybe you're still not sure that God's invite is for you. But this parable makes it clear that the invitation is for all. Maybe you don't think you have anything to wear. Maybe you think you're not good enough, but you don't have to be. Jesus has clothed you with his righteousness. He doesn't need our failed attempts at perfection. Jesus is our ticket to the party. And as we pray and as we close, I want us to pray, particularly for those amongst us who might feel distant from God's invitation, distant from God's kingdom, not entirely convinced that Jesus is the ticket they need. But also pray for those amongst us who struggle to accept this invitation, struggle to see in ourselves what God sees in us, struggle to love ourselves the way God loves us, And I pray for all of us that God would help us to see glimpses of his kingdom in the week to come. So let's stand as we pray. Our leadership team is around. If you'd like someone to pray with you, feel free just to raise a hand or walk to the sides and we'll find somebody to pray alongside you. But let me pray for us as we close. Lord, we thank you for your invitation to the party that you want us to be a part of your kingdom you created us you loved us you spent all of eternity pursuing us to invite us to your party Lord help us to recognize in that invitation your love and the love that you have for each and every one of us thank you that you provided a way for each of us to enter your kingdom. Thank you that it doesn't rely on our own efforts to be good, our own efforts to be righteous, but that the price was paid by Jesus on the cross. That as he died, he died to cleanse us and make us worthy of your kingdom, to take away the sins and the things that stand between us and the party. And Lord, help us to fully accept all that Jesus has done for us so that we may experience your kingdom today and in the future. We pray that in this week ahead, Lord, that you would help us to see glimpses of your kingdom. We pray that you would draw us into your presence, that we would recognize this fullness of your provision for us to experience your kingdom. As we come, as we go, as we speak with colleagues, as we deal with the household and our kids, whatever might lay ahead of us, reveal to us your kingdom in the week ahead. Show us where you're inviting us and help us to respond positively to your invitation and to enjoy the fullness of your presence and the fullness of joy that you promise us in your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. So nice to see you, so glad you're here Oh, 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 oh Oh, oh, oh